This morning, I want to begin by presenting you with an uncomplicated and yet extremely controversial proposition. The premise, plainly put, is this. Every able-bodied believer has been called to be actively involved in a Christ-centered community. Let me say that again. Every able-bodied believer has been called to be actively involved in a Christ-centered community. And while it's true that this is a biblical truth that ought to be embraced by every single believer, well, it's also true that this has become a very controversial statement which is quickly contested by confused Christians who would rather defend their own decision to avoid the relational complications that occur within the context of a Christian congregation. To make my case, we should take a moment to consider the results of a recent survey which was just conducted by the American Enterprise Institute. According to the AEI, uh, well, according to their research, one-third of evangelical Christians here in the United States never darken the door of a church. Think about that for a moment. 33% of evangelicals here in the U.S. avoid the local church like COVID-19. Not only that, but the same survey also revealed that only 24% of evangelicals here in the U.S. attend church on a regular basis. And and what this means as we add these numbers together, 57% of evangelicals here in the U.S. are failing to plug in and be actively involved in a Christ-centered community. Now, as we consider this data... It's crucial for every Christian to realize that the Lord is calling every able-bodied believer to plug into a fellowship of faith where his name is being exalted above every other name. That's right. Uh, The Lord is calling every able-bodied believer to plug into a Christ-centered community. And with that being the case, we all share the same responsibility in making sure that our church is, in fact, a Christ-centered community. But now what does that look like? What does a Christ-centered community actually look like? And with this question in mind, it'll help us to understand, first of all, that the Christ-centered community, it's a community that respects those who lead. The Christ-centered community is also a community that rebukes those who rebel. Thirdly and finally, we'll see that the Christ-centered community, it's a community that reconciles with those who repent. With this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's helping the, uh, the Christians there in Thessalonica uh, to become Christ-centered Christians who are then creating a Christ-centered community. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that Paul was previously encouraging his audience to live in the light of the Lord. And as we saw in our study last week, well, Paul was encouraging every believer to live in the light of the Lord as we shine the light of our Savior here in this dark world. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's advancing his point by encouraging his audience to become Christian congregants who are helping to make sure that their church is a Christ-centered community. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to begin reading there at verse 12. Here Paul declares, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. 
be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's beginning to wrap up this epistle with some final instructions for the Christians at that fellowship of faith there in Thessalonica. And we must not fail to notice how Paul once again addressed the entire congregation with the word brethren. We find the word brethren there in verses 12 and 14. And that word brethren was translated from the same Greek word that Paul used back in the first chapter of this epistle when he referred to the believers there in Thessalonica as beloved brethren. So, so this book is written to beloved brethren and specifically to the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica. And while this epistle was written and sent to a church, well, it was also then shared with other churches as, it, as this letter was copied and passed around to other churches. And so this letter is for a church. This letter is for Christians who are attending a Christian congregation. And what this, what this means then is that this book is written for the benefit of every believer that belongs to a Christian congregation. Not only that, but the instructions that we find here in our text today, they also help us to see how we ought to maintain our Christ-centered community. That being the case, I want to consider the counsel that Paul presented there in verse 12. If you would, let's look again there at verse 12 where Paul declares, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, as we take a closer look at the instructions that Paul is presenting to the congregation there in Thessalonica, well, there should be no doubt that he was encouraging those Christians to recognize those who had been ordained to lead the congregation. Now, with that, I, I realize that uh, the, the time I spend expounding upon these instructions could easily be self-serving. You know, and, and the reason why is because I am the one ordained to lead this congregation. And so it would be real easy for me to take this text and begin to teach you that you just have to just obey anything that I say and these sorts of things. And so with that, let's go ahead and take up a collection right now. And uh, <laughs> listen, I, I, I realize that I'm in a sticky situation here because anything that I say at this point could easily come across as self-serving. And yet at the same time, I realize that I've been called to present you with the whole counsel of God. That is my calling, to present you with the whole counsel of God. Therefore, I would be negligent to pass over these verses without providing you with humble exposition. And so with this as the calling, I'm going to tread lightly here, but yeah, I, I, I want to first notice here that Paul is calling the Christians there in Thessalonica, to recognize those who were ordained to lead the congregation. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Greek word, which is translated recognize, it's found there in verse 12, that word recognize can also be rendered regard, respect, or revere. Yeah, the congregation was called to revere the person who was uh, ordained to lead the congregation, which is, which is why many pastors uh, in olden times were uh, referred to as reverends. And I, and I think I'm going uh, to take that for myself as well. I'm going to change my title from pastor to the most holiest reverend, Bungie Garrett. Cards are coming soon, so I'll get those into your hands as soon as possible. 
But listen, the, the, the scholars who created the English Standard Version of the Bible, they render verse 12 in this way. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Paul's calling the Christians there in Thessalonica to respect their pastor. I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English version rendered verse 12. They put it like this. But we make this request to you, my brothers. Give attention to those who are working among you, who are over you in the Lord to keep order among you. He's saying we're, we're, we're requesting of you that you give attention or pay attention to those who are leading. Paul was encouraging the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to pay attention to the instructions that those who were ordained to lead were providing to that congregation. And while this is not to suggest that those who are ordained to lead are then somehow better than every other believer, we would do well to realize that the Lord has called some Christians to simply serve as shepherds of the flock. As this being my position, you know, as the shepherd of this flock, I can assure you right now that I am no better than anyone else. I would even argue that chances are many of you are better than me. I'm the guy that needed busy work, and so the Lord called me to shepherd this church. You know, he has to keep me in line by <laughs> making me study the Bible every week. And I appreciate that, uh, that he's given me, given me this calling. But listen, that, you know, the shepherd isn't better than anybody else. But rather, uh, the shepherd has received a specific calling and gifting. That's right. The shepherds that the Lord calls to serve in this way are empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead. In order to prove my point, let's take a closer look there at verse 12. Here Paul declares, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice that Paul was referring here to those who are presiding over the congregation. To prove my point, it'll help you to know that the word that's translated over there in the middle of verse 12, he says that they're over you in the Lord. That word over was translated from a Greek word which refers to those who stand before others, just as I'm standing before you right now. I'm standing before you as the leader of this church. And so this, I'm presiding over you right now. Now, uh, you know, in the first century, the teacher would sit down and the students would stand. And I, and I prefer that. So I think we should switch things around here, you know, so that I can sit and you guys can stand as I teach. But, but seriously, though, you know, at this point, I'm presiding over you as I teach the Bible. That's what Paul is talking about. Those who are over you in the Lord. The same Greek word was also used to those who rule over others by nature of their rank. And so by nature of my rank as pastor of this church, I am ruling over those who are part of this congregation. And in this sense, uh, the word uh, was actually used of those who are superintendents that preside over others or who serve as guardian protectors. We find Paul using a synonymous Greek word in Acts chapter 20 as he refers to a group of pastors as overseers. It's actually Acts chapter 20, verse 28. There Paul challenged a group of pastors by saying this. He declares, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, from this, we can see that the Holy Spirit is the one who calls some Christians to serve as overseers. 
And just to be clear, that word overseers, it can also be rendered guardian or superintendent. And listen, it's the Holy Spirit who calls some Christian men to serve in this role of overseer. It wasn't my calling. I didn't ordain myself. I didn't send myself out. The Holy Spirit is the one who called. And and listen, it's the Holy Spirit who gifts those he calls. The Holy Spirit has not only called some Christian men to serve as superintendents or guardians, but he empowers the same believers to shepherd the flock according to the leading of the Lord. And it's for this reason that Paul challenged every Christian to respect those who are serving our Savior in this way. And listen, I get it. You know, it's easy for, for us to take issue with decisions that pastors make because, you know, sitting on the sidelines, it's, it's easy to say, well, I wouldn't do it that way or I wouldn't have made that decision or I would have done things differently. Uh, that's easy to, to be armchair quarterback on Sunday. And yet, did you receive the spiritual gifting of pastor? Did you receive the calling of shepherding a, a, a Christian church? Because if, if not, then you haven't been given the spiritual insights that the pastor has been given as the pastor leads and oversees the congregation. So be careful with the criticisms, and which is not to say that I can never be wrong. Of course I can be. And if you can show me biblically where I've done something sinful, I, I welcome the rebuke. But if it's just a matter of, well, I would have done uh, done something differently or I wouldn't have made that decision or he should have made this decision, be careful because I'm actually the one that's been called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to lead this congregation. And Paul, according to to what the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul here, uh, we ought to then respect those decisions as we work to to, uh, further uh, the direction in which the pastor is leading. We should also notice how this encouragement was a congregational commandment, which is to say that this is true for all of us, specifically for the pastor in our fellowship. Uh, Look with me again here at verse 12. Here again, Paul declares, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, as we take another look at these verses, you know, we must not fail to notice here that Paul here is calling the Christians who are at the church there in Thessalonica to give their attention to the shepherd who was laboring among them right there in their fellowship of faith. Yeah, yeah, Paul's saying, hey, look, you're, you're supposed to respect, revere, and, and support the pastor in your church. And sure, at that point in time, there were you know, preachers who were coming through and, and guest speakers who were you know, speaking at the church, no doubt. And I have no doubt that, that some of the Christians at the church in Thessalonica were like, oh, I like that pastor better. Yeah, but that's not your pastor. <laughs> that's just a, a, an itinerant preacher or a teacher. And in similar fashion, listen, I get it. You know, I'm sure we all have a favorite pastor who isn't the pastor of this church. You know, I'm guessing that we all have a favorite pastor that we love to watch on, online at YouTube, you know, or, or we love going to their website and listening, and listening to their studies, or we buy their books and we think, that's a great pastor right there. I, I've got no problem with that. Look, look, I'm not here to say that I'm the best, the best pastor in the world. I certainly don't think that. I'm probably like number two or three. But, uh, <laughs> but seriously, you know, I, I get that. You, chances are there's another teacher out there that, that you get more from, and, and that's not uncommon. And yet, 
according to the scriptures, you are to respect your pastor, the pastor of your church, the one who labors among you. And so while there's nothing wrong with you know, having your favorite teacher and listening to their Bible studies, uh, again, it's not your job to turn around and say, well, Pastor Charles Stanley did it this way, you know, or you know, Pastor you know, Chuck Smith did it the other way. And Well, that's fine. They, they, the Holy Spirit was leading them to do it that way. Trust me that if I'm doing it differently than the Lord is leading, he can punish me. He's a big God. He, he can get me back on course. Just pray for me. But then support me as your pastor as I move forward with the decisions that I believe the Lord is leading me to make. Paul was not only instructing the Christians there in Thessalonica to recognize those, the pastors who were laboring among them, but he would also tell us, if Paul were here today, he would say the same exact thing. Recognize and respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So, so it's, your, it's your call, brethren. It's your call, sisterin, you know, to, to, to show your respect to the pastor who is leading among you. And, and listen, uh, and this is even true when we don't really like what they're saying. Let's consider how Paul put it again here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look with me again there at verse 12. Here he declares, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Now that word admonish, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of the warnings and the words of caution that the pastor presents to those who are starting to stray. And while it's easy for believers to become bitter with a pastor who says things they don't want to hear, listen, Paul challenged them to respect their pastor who's willing to admonish them with words of correction. He doesn't say respect them until you're really upset about something they said to you. No. You're to respect them and revere them and support them even when they admonish you. And according to Paul, we're to hold these same men in high esteem. As a matter of fact, let's consider how Paul puts it again here in our text today. Let's back up and begin reading at verse 12. Here he declares, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That word esteem, well, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it's used of the leaders of good reputation who deserve to be honored. Not only that, but the same Greek word was used of those who are held in high regard and respected. And with this definition in mind, there should be no doubt that Paul was calling every Christian to respect the pastor that the Lord has raised up uh, to lead in their fellowship of faith. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 13, they put it in this way. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. From this, we can see here that the congregation that greatly respects their pastor will also be a congregation that is at peace with one another. The reason why? Well, it's because when Christians respect the shepherd who is leading them, They also avoid the divisions that arise whenever believers begin to push their own agendas. Listen, if you're pushing your own agenda here at this church, then chances are you're not supporting the program of the pastor. And if we all come in pushing our own agendas, well, guess what that's going to create? Division, discord, 
It's just going to be a, a, an unpeaceful place to come and because we're all just trying to push for our own plans here, right? Instead, we ought to get behind the one leader that the Lord has raised up and work together to, to head in the direction that the ship is pointed in. And in this way, the congregation that respects their pastor and supports his leadership will then become a Christ-centered community that is at peace with one another. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Hebrews chapter 13. It's there where he declares, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To sum all of this up with simplicity, Paul was encouraging us to become Christians who are submitting to the sub-shepherd or the pastor of the church according to the choosing of the great shepherd. Listen, you can't say that you're submitting to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, while refusing to submit to the sub-shepherd that he picked for that church. You can't. If you're truly submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, then you're also submitting to the shepherd that he chose for your church. The great shepherd has ordained those who oversee each Christian congregation. And according to Paul, it is most honorable for us to live in such a way that uh, you know, would lead us to submit to the overseer of the congregation. And what's even more is that uh, this is the way that Christ Jesus then begins to make us complete for every good work according to his will. And so we see then that the Christian community that keeps Christ at the center it is a congregation that respects those who are leading. And this brings us to our second point, because listen, the Christ-centered community not only respects those who lead, but the Christ-centered community also rebukes those who rebel. With this as the focus, let's continue to consider the encouragement that Paul was presenting here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you would, let's pick up our study again at verse 14, because here Paul declares, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Warn those who are unruly. I want to stop right here because I want to consider uh, this, this word of exhortation that Paul was presenting. According to Paul, the Christ-centered community is a congregation that is ready to warn those who begin to behave in an unruly way. And just to be clear, the word unruly, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are disorderly. It's used of those who are deviant and, and divergent. The same word was also used in the military in reference to uh, the soldier who begins to march out of their rank and file. When you see a company of troops marching down you know, the, the, the road there, you know, the, there's a rank and a file. And you can always spot those who begin to march out of their rank and file. They're easy to spot because they're not within rank and file. And this is the concept of the word. Those who are unruly are stepping out of their rank and file. And with all this in mind, it's important for us to remember that Christians are enlisted in the Lord's army. 
Oh, don't take my word for it. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2. It's there where he tells us this. He says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Christian, listen, those who have placed their faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ... Well, we're immediately enlisted into the Lord's army. And now that we've become soldiers who are serving in our Savior's spiritual army, we must not fail to realize that a good soldier serves at the pleasure of our commander, Christ Jesus. We've been called to serve at the pleasure of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, the Christ-centered community is actually a congregation of Christians whose primary purpose is to please him who enlisted us to be his soldiers. That being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a good shepherd who is serving our Savior, or have I become a disorderly disciple? In other words, are we walking in step with the commands of our commander-in-chief? Or are we stepping out of line as we attempt to serve our own selfish desires? And if the latter is true of you, then it's only a matter of time until a a Christ-centered Christian will come and warn you about the unruly path that you're beginning to travel. How do I know this? Well, because a Christ-centered church includes Christians who are ready to warn those who are unruly. To prove my point, let's take another look at the first half of verse 14. Here again, Paul declares, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. This is Paul's command to every Christian, to warn those who are unruly. And just to be clear, the word warn, it's translated from the same Greek word that Paul used back in verse 12, where we learn that the overseers of the church have been called to admonish the congregants they lead. That word admonish found back in verse 12, it's the same Greek word as the word warn found here in verse 14. Every Christ-centered Christian has been called to admonish or warn those who are unruly. I like the way that the scholars who created the American Standard Version of the Bible rendered verse 14. They put the beginning of verse 14 in this way. We exhort you, brethren, admonish the disorderly. Admonish the disorderly. It's also important to notice here that Paul presented this command to every believer. This isn't a command for some Christians. It's a command for all Christians. He says, brethren, brethren warn those who are unruly. In other words, we've all been called to admonish the disorderly disciples who are failing to walk in orderly fashion. With that, listen, if if you're a Christian who thinks that it's not your place to warn a wayward believer... Biblically speaking, you're wrong. If you're one of these Christians who's like, well, it's not my place. You know, I, who am I to, you know, I still struggle with sin too. So, you know, how, how can I go and warn somebody? Well, hold on a second. You want to be a Christ-centered Christian? Because a, a Christ-centered Christian is a biblical Christian, and a biblical Christian is told to warn those who are unruly. And so if you're unwilling to warn those who are unruly, I'm warning you. Because that would be unruly, to not warn people who are unruly. 
We've all been called to make sure that our church is a Christ-centered community. And with this as the goal, we all then bear the responsibility of rebuking those who are beginning to rebel against the word of God. As a matter of fact, this was precisely the command that the Lord Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 18. There he declares, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fall between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's right, just like an IRS agent. Christian, listen, if if another believer sins against you, Listen, it's not your job to go tell two or three Christians first. Isn't that what we tend to do? So-and-so sinned against me. Let me go and tell my closest friends. No, that would be sin. If a brother or a sister sins against you, Jesus says you go to them and tell them that they sinned against you. It's your responsibility to go and and rebuke them so that the relationship might be reconciled. And and then if they reject the admonition, that's when it's time to bring in others uh, to the conversation so that the issue might be resolved in a biblical fashion. In this way, we would do our part to create a Christ-centered community by following the instructions that Jesus presented. At the same time, listen, we've also been called to correct the Christian who uh, is overtaken in sin. And and this is precisely the point that Paul is making here in Galatians chapter 6. It's there where he declares, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now as we consider this command, it'll help you to know that the word overtaken... It's used of those who are caught before the crime can be concealed. In other words, this is a situation where one Christian comes along and catches another Christian in the midst of a sin. And if you catch a Christian crossing over a biblical boundary, it's not your job to help them conceal it. No, it's your job to challenge them. It's your job to rebuke them with the goal of restoration. It's your responsibility to challenge them with a loving rebuke so that they might receive it and repent. And in this way, we provide them with accountability as we help them to bear the burden of their temptation while simultaneously doing our part to make sure that this is a Christ-centered community. At the same time, Paul also directed us to avoid the unruly believers who uh, continue to live in unrepentant sin. As a matter of fact, it's in Romans chapter 16. Here Paul declares, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. From this, we can see that the Christians, uh, you know, we, as believers, we've not only been commanded to correct those who have sinned against us, and we've not only been challenged uh, to, to, to go and rebuke the believer that we catch in some sort of carnal compromise, but listen, we've also been called to avoid the disorderly disciples who continue causing division and offenses. 
And in this way, we lead by example as we separate ourselves from divisive disciples. You see, the divisive disciple wants a them-centered church. That's why they're causing division. They have their agenda, and they want everything centered around their point of view. So they have no problem coming along and creating division. But the Christ-centered Christian turns around and says, no, this is going to be a Christ-centered church, so I'm going to divide from you. And that's the way we should handle that. We have to separate ourselves from Christians who are causing division so that we can keep this uh, and and make sure that this is a Christ-centered community, recognizing that a little of their leaven will end up leavening the whole lump. To further grasp our responsibility, I want to consider the instructions that Paul presented to a pastor named Titus. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of Titus, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Christian that fails to rebuke a disorderly disciple is actually allowing the leaven of their sin to then leaven the whole lump. In other words, it, you know, if, if, if you don't warn the unruly, then that unruliness is going to end up impacting the rest of your congregation. And while it's true that we all still struggle with sinful temptations every day, it's also true that we've been called to correct the carnal Christian who continues to walk in the flesh. And in order to prove my point, let's consider the instructions that Paul is presenting here in Titus chapter 3. Look with me there at verse 10. Here Paul declares, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging Pastor Titus to go ahead and reject a divisive disciple, but only after they've been properly admonished one or two times. This is according to the instructions, I believe, that Jesus presented back back in Matthew chapter 18. You know, you go to the Christian that sins against you. If they won't hear it, then you go take a few more. And then if they won't hear it, then the leaders of the church have to come in and admonish them. And if they won't hear it at that point in time, then they have to be removed from the church. Uh, and and if, they're, if they aren't removed from the church, then their sinfulness will begin to permeate uh, the rest of the congregation. And with that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the Christ-centered community is a congregation where every believer is ready to rebuke the unruly rebels who are continuing to live for the lusts of the flesh. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the Christ-centered community is not only one that respects those who lead and rebukes those who rebel, but the Christ-centered community is also a community that, that, that reconciles with those who will repent. Now, with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to draw your attention back to the beginning of verse 14. Here again, Paul declares, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's continuing to describe the way that believers ought to behave within a Christ-centered community. And while it's true that Christians have been called to rebuke those who are unruly, it's also true that believers have been called to comfort the faint-hearted. And just to be clear about this, Paul was encouraging us to encourage those who have no courage. 
We are to encourage those who have no courage. And, and we've been commanded to console those whose hearts are filled with fear. And listen, the best way to do this is by reminding them that our Savior is the King of Kings and he is still on the throne. And with this, I have no doubt that many of us, we have hearts that are filled with fear. And the reason why is because we've watched way too much news and, and we've sat here and looked at way too much alternative media because the famines are coming and the money's going to be gone and they're going to go to a cryptocurrency. We're going to have, you know, digital currencies and there's, you know, the WHO is going to come in and force vaccines into our arms and, and all these things are going to happen in the next five minutes. And, and what are we going to do? And there's Christians in the church today who are just filled with fear. Just filled with fear as we, as we watch these end times coming to a head. And, and if that's your position, I, I want to take a moment to encourage you. And I want to encourage you with this question. Is Jesus not still on the throne? Yes, he is. So what can man do to us? What can a man do to us? What can the enemy do to us, Christian, that God doesn't filter through his love? Quit worrying about the end of the world and realize that Jesus Christ is on the throne and he is guiding us every day into his perfect will. So we ought to encourage one another. And if somebody comes to you with, you know, the fear of famine and, and, and it's all going to fall apart and we're all going to end up in jail and we're all going to be hung from, listen, Jesus is the King of Kings and he is in charge and we don't have to live in fear. And so I encourage you in this way. And not only should we comfort the faint hearted by reminding them that Jesus is on the throne but Paul also instructed us to uphold those who are weak. And what this means is that those who have learned how to stand in the spiritual strength of our Savior ought to then turn around and help those who are still too weak to run this race with endurance. No doubt that there are strong Christians who are standing in the strength of Jesus Christ here in our church, but at the same time, there are those who are struggling to stand. There are, uh, there are Christians that are, that are too weak to run. And those who are standing in the strength of our Savior should then turn around and help those who are too weak to walk. We are to uphold those who are weak. And that word uphold found in verse 14, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who support those who can't support themselves. In this way, Paul commanded us to care for the Christians who need a temporary crutch. And maybe it's a temporary crutch of strict accountability, or maybe it's just a daily phone call, or a, 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 you know, just helping them to, re, to remember that the Lord has spiritual strength for us every single day. But regardless of what's necessary in the situation, those who are able to stand should help those who are too weak to walk. That being the case, it only makes sense that Paul concluded verse 14 by encouraging every Christian in this way. He tells us to be patient with all. We're to be patient with all. That word patient, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are long-suffering. We're, we're to be long-suffering with those who are not yet perfect, you know, like we are. Isn't that the way it kind of comes across at times, you know? Our impatience with others is really just a, a picture of our pride. Because the humble person will be patient with those who are imperfect, recognizing that we too are imperfect, right? Right? 
So let's be patient with those who are imperfect, recognizing that we too are imperfect. The same word, patient, speaks of those who are slow to anger and slow to punish. And with this as the goal, the Christian who is patient with all is ready to bear the offenses and even the injuries of others as we walk in forgiveness with one another. What this means then is that the patient Christian is a forgiving Christian. I like the way that the Lord Jesus explained it in Luke chapter 17. It's there where he declares, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now the eighth time, no problem. Just go ahead and withhold forgiveness, you know. Number eight, you know, they're done. No, of course that's not what Jesus was saying. Hey, seven times, eight times, nine times, whatever. You know, as many times as someone sins against you and then turns around and and repents, you are called to forgive them. Now that's going to take some patience on our part now, isn't it? And yet that's what we're called to do. Be patient with all. The Christ-centered community is a fellowship of faith that is filled with forgiveness for one another. And while I realize that it's always easier to hold a grudge against those who step on our little sensitive toes, we must remember that Paul has called us to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the best way to demonstrate our patience with them is to walk in forgiveness as we uh, seek to reconcile with those who will repent. With this as the goal, we should also notice what Paul said there in verse 15. It's there where he declares, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is both good, or what is good uh, both for yourselves and for you. As we consider this counsel, I'm sure we all realize that most people are prone to vain imaginations of vengeance. Like when somebody cuts you off on the highway. Don't you start immediately, like in your mind, just thinking, oh, I can pull up right beside them. I can pull up right behind them. I'm going to get them. You know? or, or, or if somebody you know, is in your neighborhood and causing a ruckus and these sorts of things, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, and the vain imaginations of vengeance just start firing off. Now, listen, we expect this of the average unbeliever for them to, you know, seek their own vengeance. But listen, it's also true that Christians who have been hurt by others tend to engage in the same vain imaginations. And rather than responding with immediate forgiveness, well, we tend to hold a grudge as we plot our revenge. Knowing that this can occur within the context of a Christian community, Paul encouraged us to make sure that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. He elaborates on this in Romans chapter 12. It's there where Paul declares, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now from this, it should be clear to all of us that, listen, if I sin against you, you're supposed to take me to lunch. That's what it says. (laughs) But seriously, the believer who wants to make sure that their church is a Christ-centered community 
They should replace every desire for vengeance with a patient plan to keep the peace with those who are still struggling with sin. And so while it's true that we've been called to rebuke those who sin against us, it's also uh, true that we've been called to keep the peace by refraining from any act of vengeance. And in this way, we're creating space for the sinning Christian to come to a place of repentance so that then we can seek relational reconciliation. If you immediately respond with vengeance, then how does that give them time for repentance? And if there's no time for repentance, then how can there be reconciliation? Christians, we've been called to create a congregation where reconciliation is the rule and not the exception. And yet we must give space for that by shutting down all of those thoughts of getting our revenge. Leave it up to the Lord. He'll do a much better job. With all this as the goal, we should also consider how our passive patience as we suppress the desire for vengeance ought to also become an active pursuit of righteousness. That's right, we have been called to you know, passively suppress desires for vengeance. And the best way to do this is by actively pursuing what is good and right. And with that, let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verse 15. There Paul declares, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That word pursue, it's translated from a Greek word, which can also be rendered eagerly seek. Eagerly seek. The same word. It's used of those who earnestly endeavor to acquire the thing that they're eagerly seeking. With this definition in mind, we can see then how every Christian has been called to earnestly endeavor for that which is good. And and both for ourselves and for everyone else here. We are to earnestly endeavor to establish that which is good for ourselves and for every other believer here in our fellowship of faith. And seeing how relational reconciliation is in fact a good thing, well then we must learn how to forgive those who have sinned against us so that there can be space for reconciliation. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Christian, listen, those who hold a grudge against others, they have hearts that begin to fill up with bitter unforgiveness. And then what comes out of their mouth? What comes out of the poisoned well where bitter unforgiveness is stored up? Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. And it's sad to say that a lot of Christians spend a whole lot of time and energy speaking about others in these sorts of ways. These are the people who maliciously seek the revenge that they want against those who have sinned against them. They speak evil of those who have hurt them. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, then please trust me when I tell you that we've been called to pursue what is good. And I can assure you that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking is not good. We are to pursue what is good for everyone here within our Christian community. And yes, 
even those who have sinned against us. In order to further grasp this righteous responsibility, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Christians at the church in Colossae. So if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and as you make your way to the third chapter of Colossians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Christian community, it actually consists of those who have been reconciled to God through the forgiveness that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we trust in what he accomplished there on the cross, It's at that point in time when the grace of God is then applied to our lives, which enables us to be reconciled to God the Father. And listen, if this is true of you, if you've been reconciled to God the Father through the forgiveness that is received by faith in Jesus Christ, then shouldn't we also be ready to extend the same forgiveness to others who want to reconcile with us? Don't we now bear the responsibility as born-again believers to be ready to reconcile with those who have sinned against us? But this question in mind, I want to consider the way that Paul addresses this. It's here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12. Here Paul declares, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Christian, listen, we've been called to to, join together corporately in one body. And as we do this, no doubt we're going to be sinning against one another. We're going to struggle in our relationships with one another. And and that's, that's just par for the course of any relationship. And listen, if the bond of our relationship is... You don't ever sin against me, I don't ever sin against you, and then we can have a relationship. If that's the the bond of our relationship, that you be perfect, I'll be perfect, and if there's any imperfections, then there's no relationship. If if that's what bonds our community together, listen, uh, let's pack it up and go home. Because it'll never work. That'll never work. And the reason why is because we're all imperfect. And we all struggle in our imperfections. Thankfully, the bond of our relationship is not based on how perfect we are, but how perfect Jesus is. And it's for this reason that Paul tells us to put on love, which is the bond of our perfection. And we're to let the peace of God rule in our hearts to which we were called in one body. We should come together and and seek the peace of God together. And, And with this as the goal, knowing that we all still struggle with our fallen nature, Paul encouraged every believer to bear with each other. Why do we have to bear with each other? Because sometimes we're unbearable. 
And so, yeah, we've been called to bear with each other and forgive one another. And if anyone here has a grievance against anyone else, then we're called to forgive them in the same way that the Lord forgave us when we repented. That's what he says. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Therefore, the Christ-centered community is a a church where Christians are ready to reconcile with those who repent in the same way that Jesus Christ has enabled us to be reconciled to God the Father by faith in him. Now, with all of this in mind, I want to wrap up our study today by taking a moment to personalize the premise of this study. And I want to do this by asking... Am I doing my part to help create a Christ-centered community? Are you, am I, are are we doing our part to help create a Christ-centered community? Are we actually respecting those the Lord has called to lead? Are we rebuking those who are beginning to rebel? Are we reconciling with those who are ready to repent? In other words, are we doing everything that we can to make sure that our church is a Christ-centered community? And if so, if you can say yes to these things, then I encourage you, keep up the good work. And let's work together to keep this community centered on Jesus Christ. We don't need a bungee-centered church. We don't need a cult of personality. We don't need a you-centered church. We need a Jesus-centered church. And that's what we should work towards. And if this isn't something that you're working towards, then I encourage you to realize that the Christian who fails to help create a Christ-centered community is a Christian who is probably failing to live a Christ-centered life. The Christian who fails to help create a Christ-centered community is probably failing to live a Christ-centered life. And if this sounds like your struggle, then I encourage you to, to follow the instructions that Paul presented here in Colossians 3. It's here where Paul declares, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to allow the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts so that we then begin to just worship our Savior with a heart that's filled with his truth. And from this, we are to then align our lives according to his word so that whatever we do in word or deed is done with Jesus in mind. Every believer has been called to become a Christ-centered Christian. And as we become Christ-centered Christians, he will then help us to become those believers who are respecting those who lead, rebuking those who rebel, and reconciling with those who repent. With this as the goal, let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to help us to become Christ-centered Christians who are then helping our church to become a Christ-centered community. Let's pray.